0: From the rugged desert outside Yuma, Arizona, this is Outpost Outspoken. Outpost Outspoken is the official podcast of U.S. Army Yuma Proving Ground, which conducts natural environment testing of military equipment in Arizona, Alaska, and the tropics.
1: Welcome to Outposts Outspoken. I'm your host, Anna Henderson. The Munitions and Weapons Division at YPG conducts daily testing operations of weapon systems and ammunitions prior to fielding the systems to the warfighter. Today, I'm speaking with the Chief of the Division, Kermit Okamura. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. So, uh, Munitions and Weapons Division, uh, we test indirect fire test capabilities, and we also test the uh, uh, mine, countermine, and demolition uh, capabilities for ATEC. And so we're the test center of excellence for indirect fire testing. And we've been doing it for 20, 25 years now. The, the mission itself is to provide uh, the warfighter the ability to execute indirect fires with safe and effective fires capability, meaning that you know you have uh, infantry on the front line. Well, you, you also need support with uh, indirect fire support to help them maneuver uh, in either direction, uh, provide cover fire, and we're talking large caliber uh, and ammunition. Uh, Weapon systems greater than 40 millimeters. The difference between you know shooting a rifle or a handgun is, is that you're going to shoot it at somebody or a tank. A tank is a, is a good example. People get uh, tanks kind of mixed in with self-propelled howitzers. Indirect fire means I'm shooting over the horizon. Meaning I'm not shooting at something I can see. So it's, a, it's a, a capability that goes beyond the line of sight. Going back through the history of our artillery, you know, you, you, have, um, you have people calling for fire. So you have scouts out there that are actually directing fires from a forward position, forward of the gun. You just think if, uh, you know, it's almost like a chessboard where you're like, okay, I need people in certain places with artillery and the indirect fire support, it's ability to, uh, to help the, the guys on the ground move around. Really, it provides the, the battle space commander to be able to use what resources he has on, on how to, you know, basically figure out how he's going to fight the fight.
1: It's pretty incredible to think that there is a city maybe, you know, 35 miles away from us.
2: You know, just with YPG in general, um, for the folks in the community, you know, it's beyond the mountains. It's north of town. You know, if you go to the parades, yeah, you'll see the, you'll see the Humvees or the MATV or, or whatever on display. But then when you get down and you talk at, you know, it could be the air show, it could be all these other things. People really don't understand what's uh, what YPG provides, not just to the local economy, but also to just in general. We test the Marine Corps equipment, we test primarily Army stuff uh, in this capability area. But in general, people don't really know what kind of activities go on out here. And then even when you're driving down Highway 95, it looks like a desert.
1: There's no clue of what is happening back there, but it's really amazing because... Everything that you're testing is will one day be in the hands of the warfighter, and the whole point is to make sure that it is safe for them. You have members on your team that some are engineers, some are prior military, mm-hmm. and they are all being able to test this equipment that maybe they didn't even fire when they were in the military, right. but they're doing it here.
2: Yeah, I mean, in layman's terms, like just the, the, you know, whenever we have uh, folks that come in to an interview and like say, well, what is, what do you do here? So I often tell p- people that we're kind of like the car and driver and, ro- and, and road and track, but instead of for, you know, automobiles or vehicles, we're looking at military equipment or material what we do is we'll, we'll take something that's getting developed and we'll test it and say okay well comparatively speaking to like car and driver road and track it's like if you're looking at a car well how does it handle how you know how far does it take to break what's the max horsepower that it, it puts out all the stuff that you would look for in the specs for the car But two, you look at is it safe? Uh, Is it reliable? All these different things. Uh, If you look at it from that perspective, that's what we do for uh, the warfighter in terms of the equipment that they're going to use. So, whether it's a handgun or whether it's a a vehicle, a tracked vehicle, a wheeled vehicle, a tactical supply vehicle, or any of those things, we're looking at is it safe? Does it perform as designed? And is it reliable? Is it durable? Will it work every time that they crank it? You know, if it's a car, every time you Turn on the ignition, will it crank over and will it will it be working? Or do I need to take it back to get maintained every five minutes, you know? So those are the types of, uh, of data that we collect here. We work with the customers to basically flesh out the requirements and what what can we test here. Uh, largely, we're testing stuff because of the environment, right? So desert environment. So back in the early two, uh, mid-2000s, early 2000s, uh, and throughout to early 2010s, you know, we're testing a lot of uh, military tactical and combat vehicles because we're occupying uh, the Middle East. And so a lot of the testing that was done here was uh, as a result of the environment that we have. You know, getting back to munitions and weapons division, so we test artillery and mortar testing as our primary uh, as a primary capability area. But we also do mines countermines and demolition. So whether it's ground-penetrating radar, uh, metal detectors or other things that uh, for sweeping, for minefields, we have several uh, facilities here that, that are made to help stress the systems out to, to test them, to see can it detect things in the ground? And if so, how accurate. And those are uh, some of the other capabilities that we take care of uh, or, or that's under our purview here within this division.
1: Uh, tell me a little bit about your test officers because they are the ones that execute these tests. What is a typical day in a life of a test officer if there is a typical day?
2: <laughs> going back to like the, the briefing I give whenever we're looking at potential new hires, it's like, well, what's the typical day look like? I'm going to tell you it's 50-50 in the field and 50% in the office. That could vary it could be day to day i'm in the office in the morning and i'm in the field in the afternoon or it could be i'm in the office for four weeks and then i'm out in the field for eight you know that's not 50 50. but it's (laughs) it's that's that shows a spectrum of like um of time that you you can spend in the office now what do the test officers do they uh they primarily are working with each test customer on scoping the test estimating for the cost, arranging schedules, trying to find out when assets are available, et cetera. And then they'll take those requirements from the customer and they'll come here and look at what, what are we able to provide and then get that schedule the range so that we can collect the data that they need to make informed decisions. Our, uh, our test officers take very good care of facilitating all these parts and pieces coming together to make sure that the test is executed safely Uh, securely, and then also it gets the data that the customers need.
1: You started your career at YPG as a test officer. Now look at you. You are the chief of the Munitions and Weapons Division.
2: I had the intention to come in here for one year. What's in Yuma? I'm coming out here and and I'm going to get one year of experience and I'm going to find me a job in Phoenix, LA, San Diego, wherever. You know, once I got here and saw the, and and actually took the role on of a test officer, I found that uh, I got, you know, it was a fulfilling job and role for one, right out the get-go, and then the other thing is I had a lot of responsibility even at 23, 24 years old that I don't think I would have got had I been in private industry. You know, I had friends that went to Chevron, Shell, Intel, etc., graduating from, uh, from college with an engineering degree, uh, whereas here, you know, we weren't designing stuff, we were on the tail end of like, hey, not necessarily saying we're trying to break stuff, but if it broke, it's because we tested it to its limits. And uh, when I got here in two thousand and four, I was working uh, on Bradley fighting vehicles, and so I, you know, it's something so cool. I get to shoot these. Uh, it look like a tank. I thought it was a tank when I started, but it was pointed out very, uh, very quickly that that's not a tank. You know, it's it's a it's a fighting ve- it's an infantry fighting vehicle, and it's got a you know twenty five millimeter cannon on, not a hundred twenty millimeter tank round. So the tankers <laughs> will tell you
1: technical. that.
2: Yeah, no, but it's not a tank. So, um, but the uh, testing. You know, I just immediately fell in love with the role of the test officer, the fulfillment of the duties that they do, and then the end product, which is, you know, you're gonna see that this item is gonna be in the hands of, at the time, somebody my age fighting in a war off who knows where. You know, and at the time, it was in, it was in, in Iraq. And um, so I said initially, hey, I'm gonna be here for a year, and uh, I've never looked back. I don't think, I, if I was telling somebody this the other day, Like, there's never been a day where you're driving that 25, 30-minute commute to YPG that I've ever said, I don't want to work here, or I I don't want to be here, or, you know, if you can find something you love, and then why why change it? Why do something different? So uh, that was, as a test officer, uh, testing Bradley vehicles, uh, Bradley Fighting Vehicles. I guess I was doing something right. I got moved up to a team leader a few years later. I had my own team of folks, and that had its own... Uh, different level of complexities and challenges. So, as team lead for, I think about three years, and then uh, the uh, Claudia Anderson was the division chief here at M&W at the time. She they they moved back east, and so the opportunity came up, and and I thought, well, why, why not, you know? And so I came here to uh, M&W in December of 2012, and so almost 10 years now. So more than half of my career has been. Working on uh, with the Combat Automotive Systems Division, and the other half has been here as the, the division chief, and it's been fulfilling.
1: Kermit, thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure.
0: He's worked in the contracting office at Yuma Proving Ground for 17 years, and all along, Eric Retta has continued his lifelong fascination with painting. His artwork is hung in the halls of Congress, and murals he painted while in high school still stand. Hey, Eric it's good to see you today. Hey how's it going? Good, good. Now let me ask you from what I understand you were first inspired to paint when you were young by watching Bob Ross.
3: Yes I used to enjoy watching him on TV back then it was a tube TV <laughs> and um, ever since then I would paint in, uh, different different things different uh, scenes and whatnot took a uh, class and junior high school to kind of fine-tune the basics, shape, shadow, shade, uh, and uh, with that I kind of took off on my own to uh, grow myself and um, came to a point where I started just being able to paint things that I see and things
0: within my imagination. But Even before that, like you went to Yuma High School for instance, you painted some murals over there when you were a student?
3: Yes, I did. I have, uh, I made some mural projects over there, in the triangle I contributed to a a water fountain in the Triangle area, it's got a ball and a chain, it's one of the designs that we have there. Uh, for the city of Yuma, several mural projects for uh, around the areas of Carver Park and um, some of the other city locations around that park also, there's uh, several sections of that building. And that was a lot of fun. That was helping high-risk kids uh, tune in their their arts, you know, into the things. They were <laughs> they used to work with spray paint cans, if you know what I mean. So. The whole idea and concepts behind that were to get them to get gearing more towards the fine arts. So, working with kids is something that I enjoy, I enjoy teaching in general actually. You were part of the
0: National Merit of Fine Arts competition too in those years.
3: Yes, I took first in state and then I took first in national around the country. The artwork was uh, then presented in the halls of the Capitol building. I went up there, they flew us. all expense paid trip for the signing and uh, I met with a congressman and a couple of celebrities and that was a
0: fun time for me. That was quite adventurous for an 18-year-old. i bet. i bet. Now you went to Northern Arizona University. Yes. Bachelor's and Master's degree. All done. Your Master's in Public Management.
3: The coin to that is, you know, you have this ability, you want to do art, you want to do something with it, but you don't know what I was struggling with that because at the time I was like, well, I want to teach, but I also want to have a baseline so that I can continue to do artwork. Well, that's where concepts were entered into my head about, you know, working in business and my dad would bring that up all the time and my brother, so a lot of family support there with choosing that decision to go into business. It went against my, um, my passion for art, but in a way it helped it. I was able to have a better source of
0: income to stabilize my hobby. You used to pull a Bob Ross and paint a picture in 45 or 60 minutes, Five right? minutes. Five minutes? <laughs> Five minutes. You were better than Bob Ross,
3: <laughs> Yeah, first show was at Arizona Western College and I sat there and they had like a, an arts contest for all arts, so whether it's theater or um, juggling some kind of like uh, America's Got Talent type of thing, right? But this was different. It was more localized, right? So yeah, I did an ocean painting like in under five minutes right there in front of everyone. It was a lot of fun. This is painting with brushes. This is not spray paint cans.
0: <laughs> You've been here 17 years now. Yes. Sounds like you're not going anywhere.
3: I, I And I enjoy my job here. I like working here on the base. And it's been been one of those things where I was like, well, I'm going to work here. And, um, and before you know it, I, I get hooked. I start doing certain things here and then I start getting into other areas and other areas and before you know the time goes by. And I still love to paint and do art but you know as you grow up a little further and further along you start to develop a passion for your own career path that you got into and that, that would be where I'm at here.
0: Do you expect you'll ever open a gallery someday?
3: I'd like to but uh, it sure is expensive right now. <laughs> things have gone up in, in price and you know whether you're trying to get a commercial property to open up a business or even residential, to have a house of your own. It's its quite high. I'm glad I was able to get a house um, back in the early 2000s when I first got a job working out here because that's been quite the staple for me. So, but yeah, someday soon I, I plan to move on and maybe um, open up a gallery sometime here, maybe in Yuma.
0: That's good stuff, Eric. Thanks for visiting us today. Thanks for having me. This has been Outpost Outspoken. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time from the Army's busiest test center.